And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Red alert! All hands to battle stations! Engage! Captain Picard is a pain, isn't he? Interesting. No redeeming qualities. I think you should be destroyed. The great Captain Picard of Starfleet falls to Earth. Go back. Thou shalt most certainly die. Protect yourself, Captain, or they'll destroy you. We are dangerous. What can I offer except myself? Welcome to Star Trek Monthly Monday, episode 54. This is the Next Generation edition. I'm Chris Honeywell, and I'm here with my little buddy, Scott Gardner. Howdy. Yeah. <laughs> Coming up with a new <laughs> new uh, greeting every episode. Something Guaranteed. like that. Yeah. You said little buddy, so I was trying to I was trying to adopt a little buddy kind of voice. Really? Yeah, I thought maybe whatever the hell that sounds uh, like. I don't know if you do a Gilligan impression uh, but... <laughs> So mercifully yeah. I have watched very few episodes of, of Gilligan's, Gilligan's Island. Island. That was just one of those shows that my dad would not tolerate being on the television growing up. Oh, but Ginger and Marianne were were puberty helpers for <laughs> any a kid along with the Marsha Brady's of the world you know they they served a purpose there was a reason for Gilligan's Island and it wasn't the skipper and his little buddy <laughs> <laughs> although that might have been a metaphor for the kids watching the show yeah, when they saw go. Ginger and Marianne hey skipper how's the little buddy <laughs> Had an issue of uh, of Cherry Pop Tart that had a, a a parody of Gilligan's Island uh-huh. where Cherry Pop Tart was on the island with them, and things happened. If you know what I mean, things always happen. And <laughs> <laughs> Cherry Pop Tart—that's the purpose of Cherry Pop Tart. 
But we are not here tonight to talk about Cherry Pop Tart, although no, that she, she does show up in, in Star Trek in one of the one of the issues, if I recall right, too. <laughs> I, I think so. I think you're right. We are going to talk about a third season episode called "Who Watches the Watchers," and it doesn't I kept... have like Doctor Who like <laughs> in the Marvel universe. I kept waiting for Doctor Manhattan and his big blue wang to show up in this one, but it never did. No, no, I would have, and maybe there, maybe something would have happened with the <laughs> or one of the unibrow Klingon ladies. <laughs> so let's see synopsis. For I call this, this one, one "Planet of the Unibrow Klingons." <laughs> Planet of the Unibrow Klingons. Well, they're more like Romulans, aren't they? Like they—they like they, the, they are sort of more like Romulans, actually. Because the the Romulans that we'll see—have we seen Romulans? Yeah, we've seen Romulans once or twice in this so far, right? These guys are a little more mellow than Romulans, though. Yeah. Well, they're supposed to be like what does Data call like proto Vulcans proto or something Bronze like that? Age Vulcans. Yeah, but they're more really like, as far as their physical look, they're they're more like Romulans, I think, than they are. Vulcans, but their mannerisms kind of like them. Yeah, Somewhere they're like in between, like stoner, stoner Vulcans. Yeah, yeah they're, dude, that's yeah, yeah, true. On the next episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation, a tragic accident exposes the crew to a savage alien race. Crusher Enterprise, medical emergency. Riker leads a secret mission to save a dying team member. Riker. We will keep Troy captive. But Picard must sacrifice his life for Troy. He will kill me. Father, no! On Star Trek, the next generation. So the synopsis on this one, out of the nitpicker's guide for next generation Trekkers, we got the Enterprise responds to a distress call from an anthropological... Uh, studies group on Mintaka 3. I love how they always have to give you the name of the planet. Like, it makes any difference. The scientists are observing an extended family of Mintakans. A proto-Vulcan... Oh, there you go. Proto-Vulcan race in the Bronze Age of Development. Unfortunately, the anthropologist's uh, reactor is uh, malfunctioning. The Enterprise is warping over to provide repairs. Among other things, the reactor provides power for the scientist's holographic camouflage. As the generator shorts out, arcing electricity injures the scientists and the camouflage evaporates. When an away team beams down to assist the scientists, a Mintakin watches the scene. When he is discovered, the Mintakin falls backward off a ledge and injures himself. And I think he's pretty much going to die, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Crusher beams him to sick, uh, sick bay. While in sick bay, the Mintakin sees Picard. He comes to believe Picard is an overseer, the Mintakin term for God. Dr. Crusher tries to erase the Mintakin's short term memory, but the procedure fails. Upon return, the Mintakin begins formulating a system of belief based on his experience. The head anthropologist, Dr. Barron, <laughs> suggests that Picard beam down and give the Mintakins a set of rules, which I think was an extremely sensible piece of advice that Picard pretty much disregards. 
Instead, Picard brings the female leader of the Mintakan group aboard the Enterprise, because that doesn't in any way, you know, affect the Prime Directive or further contaminate their culture or, you know, just make her just wig the hell out. He explains that he is flesh and blood, just like the Mintakans. The leader is finally convinced when she sees one of the anthropologists die from the injuries. Uh, Picard and the leader beam back to the planet. The mailman talking whom Dr. Crush took to sickbay refuses to believe Picard is just a man. He wants Picard to resurrect his wife. The man tries to prove that Picard is the overseer by shooting him with an arrow. Sure, why not? <laughs> he was asking it's... for it, literally. <laughs> literally, it's... he was. Yeah, he was actually asking for it. It hits Picard in the left shoulder. Again, what difference does it make which shoulder. shoulder anyway when the Mentakans see the blood they realize Picard is just like them ooh I don't know that I like that Ooh, synopsis cut me, do I not bleed I wish I'd read that ahead of time because I probably would have written my own I didn't I, that was kind of eh. I used to be the Picard until I took an arrow to the shoulder <laughs> <laughs> okay you just found your picture for this episode dude <laughs> You, that's gotta be that's gotta be the picture for this one. That's funny. Uh, okay. I know I give Picard a lot of grief, and I'm going to continue to do so, but I like this episode. Oh yeah, he walks I like the this prime episode. directive walk a lot more than Kirk does in this one. He yeah. takes an air he takes an air he he sits there and he's like he's just lucky the guy like gets knocked a little sideways and and gets a bad shot off because he was about to he, he would have taken an arrow I mean if he would have put an arrow right in his heart that would have been that you know well so. see I often wondered about his motivations in this as far as you know go ahead shoot me because if, if he had shot him in the heart yeah game over a possibility he might not have died because Picard has an artificial heart has that been oh, established right. yet? right yes it has remember. they okay. had to fix it in that one episode but yeah that's right but i'm wondering was he gonna hit him in the heart or was he gonna plug him in the head <laughs> you know so if he, he's taking an arrow to the eye it was then it was pretty much game over you know yeah it would have been captain cyclops picard with an eye patch that would have been pretty exciting <laughs> made him look a little more intimidating when uh when uh he's talking to some enemy uh ship if he started talking like a pirate, I'd like him so much better. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, where to begin on that? Well, I'll tell you where, where I'm going to begin. I'm going to, it has to be said, you know, I like me my potty humor from time to time. So what's her name? The, the head unibrow woman wanders off and Picard, or not Picard, Riker and Troy are communicating with the ship with these, uh, what do they call it? The subcutaneous, subcutaneous uh, uh, communicators. Yeah. So the moment that they determine that that woman is isolated by herself, that's when Picard beams her up to the Enterprise. I think it would be hysterical if she had gone off to be by herself because she was in the freaking bathroom. Exactly. She beams her up and like you know, She's squatting there, taking yep. a dump. <laughs> Awkward. <laughs> Awkward way to meet your gods. <laughs> Could you imagine that? What a cruel god it would be to beam you up right in the middle of a, a. If it was a really good dump, though, it might be like one of those like, oh god, 
Uh, Happened to Elvis. That's true. That is true. <laughs> oh, these these people should not be allowed to have any religion at all ever, because man, <laughs> this is the fastest I've ever seen a religion go bad. To like, I've seen the gods to like, we must kill this one. <laughs> you know, it just. It's like the cliff notes of religion gone bad. Well, that's one of my nitpicks for this one. It it's is like 20 minutes. It takes 20 minutes before they're ready to offer up sacrifices randomly just on the like, right. I don't know. I guess that's what we should do. We got to do something, right? Somebody makes the statement. I think it's Troy, but I forget. But somebody makes the statement that thousands of years ago, these proto-Vulcan dudes gave up superstitious beliefs and beliefs yeah. in gods and that sort of, and, and embraced proto-logic essentially and now in the course of a, of a 40 minute episode they're suddenly going to develop an entire religion including human sacrifice as you say and it's like really in 20 minutes yeah in 20 yeah that's that's pretty fast to uh to go from no we we're all about science to Okay, you know, yeah, strap them like, to the altar. It's time to drive a dagger into their chest. Well, it's so. like when you take grandma to the casino and, you know, and 20 minutes later she's spent the entire family's savings at the blackjack <laughs> table. <laughs> Are you still bitter about that? Don't take grandma to the casino, folks. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what religion is to these people, a big casino. They're just they're going to bet the farm right off the Right off the bat, the first thunderstorm that comes along, and they're like crapping their their Planet of the Apes. Well, no, they had more woven outfits. They're like hippie pants. They're Guatemalan pirate pants. Yeah, they're a little too snug for comfort on some of the members of the uh, of the so ensemble. So to speak. Here. Yeah. yeah. Um, I can't. See, it doesn't make a note here of what the guy's name is. The the Mintakin that gets beamed up, the the main character, mm -hmm. the one that that organizes. I can't remember what the character's name is, but the actor. Did you recognize him by any chance? No, I didn't. I like this guy a lot. He's he's one of those bit character actors that you've seen around a million times, but but doesn't you know come immediately to a lot of people's mind. You know who he actually is. That's Ray Wise. I actually like this guy a lot. He's been in a ton of stuff. Probably the, the two things that always stand out most in my memory was he was one of uh, Clarence Bodiger's goons in the original RoboCop. Uh -huh. He's the one where RoboCop goes to the nightclub to arrest him, and he tries to kick RoboCop in the balls, and he just ends up injuring his foot, and then he's dragged away by the hair of the head. Uh -huh. That's him. And then also, he was Alec Holland in Swamp Thing. Oh, wow. Remember the original Swamp Thing? Yeah. Yeah, it's Alec Holland. I never would have. I never would have spotted that. Yep. I like him a lot. He's he's been in lots of other stuff beyond that, but those are the two things I always remember him best for. Well, I did notice his daughter's name is O.G., which is the same <laughs> name as a little girl from the Magilla Gorilla cartoons. <laughs> but that's as far into the trivia as I get this episode. <laughs> You managed to tie Star Trek to Magilla Gorilla. I'm proud of you. Thank you. Oh my god. It wasn't I wasn't hard. Her name was OG. OG. OG, Mr. Luthor. <laughs> <laughs> Man. 
And I haven't thought about Megillah Gorilla. I don't know how many years. <laughs> I I, uh. I noticed in this episode the um and once again I downloaded the nice high def version is uh ah the Enterprise D is looking really handsome in a lot of these shots. There's some really nice shots of it. Um, where where are you watching these from? Because see, I watch. I've been watching them on um, Netflix. On Netflix, but the ones for TOS on Netflix are the new enhanced ones in HD, and they look really good. But the ones for next gen are. I, I don't know what source they're coming from, but they're not high def, and I think they look a little crap myself. Oh. I don't know. But I'll have to see if I can find a source to watch. I just them found mine lying around the internet. That's insane. Uh, I'll see if I can find them laying around the internet as well, because I would like to see them high def. It was it was weird the um um texture of the top of the dome, and the lighting of it as it was circling the planet almost looked like elephant skin. Mm-hmm. It was really neat. It was it just had it. It was just because you were seeing it from a with the light at a different angle than you're used to, so it was sort of throwing shadows over the textures of the top of the dome. So you saw that it wasn't perfectly smooth and flat, you know, and it was really right. Are you talking about Picard's head, right? No, <laughs> perfectly. It's <laughs> he's got more of a bullet head than a flat head. Yeah, he does actually. Oh, I I would I would totally watch. An old, uh, an old like golden age superhero movie with uh, what's his name, uh, Patrick Stewart as Bullet Man. Oh, I'd watch yeah. that. <laughs> he wouldn't even have to wear a helmet. Hey, Troy didn't annoy the hell out of me in this episode. She was annoying, but not as much as as usual. I thought she that... actually serves a, a semi purpose in this episode. Yeah, for yeah, a change. that's what I'm saying. And and the scene where she and Riker first arrive on the planet was kind of a charming scene because you know they've had some romance in between them and they're on an adventure together, and they get to sort of and you could tell that especially Riker. Riker and he loves that shit, man. He mm-hmm. loves getting down into the nitty-gritty with whatever culture it is and seeing everything so he's got his blanket to trade and he's ready to go and they're in their outfits and they're enjoying it you know that she's they're flirting and and just sort of just like all right we're on assignment together we get to have a little fun while being on assignment because you know they're good they're going and play acting really so i thought that was a really charming little scene yeah yeah, I like the two of them together. They, they, I sometimes I feel like they strung out the whole are they or aren't they thing a little long. I mean, come on, they strung it out for seven seasons, but I, I do like it when they're kind of on and well, together in in scenes like that. And they set it up right at the beginning of the series that they they had a thing. So and then they sort of just backed it up, you know, like as if right. people were gonna, you know, people maybe they won't watch the first episode any again, you know. But in the first episode, they're talking to each other inside their brains and everything. <laughs> so yeah, I'm trying to think of what else I've got on this one besides just you know the elephant in the room or the whole prime directive thing. 
Well, you see, I think I liked the way they dealt with it because it was sort of like one of those things where oh, this is the same as in the last episode. They they come across a breach in it. This one wasn't a purposeful breach. Right. Or you know, or as as much of a malicious breach as in the first one. And then they have to do damage control. What do we do now that this has happened? you know, to make the best out of the situation. And they're sort of obligated to do it, too, because they're, you know, there's Starfleet. So I thought the way they dealt with... I mean, the, the way they dealt with it in the original series was pure pulp. It was really just action. And this one, there was, you know, it was there were some serious shadings to it, you know? As much as it can put in a 42-minute show, but it was it was interesting that you know, you kn- I, I I always I think this is a another classic, next generation just sort of solid science fiction, you know, right. not too deep, not too shallow, with a with a with a story to to hold it together, but um. You know they 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 can't just do one or two things to solve the situation. I mean, if it you know twenty years before this, you know it's like oh we don't want him to remember. Hit him on the back of the head with a pan. You know that's how you made. <laughs> and this it was like and and then it was like oh yeah well we have the Pulaski method of doing it and it's and it's one of those things where you know when Pulaski did that it's like oh okay so now they have this from now on they can make people forget. Well, right. no, it's not really perfected, and Pulaski seemed to be the only one who was really, you know, skilled enough to do it in that area. So it didn't; it just didn't take. And uh, that- I like that a lot because that was actually a callback to another episode because that was the one with Shar- Sarjenka, um, mm-hmm. where her planet was going to blow up there, and they ended up saving the planet and everything. I, right. I like that one. That, that was a good one. And, you know, and they eventually they have to do things that are sort of counterintuitive, like beam people. They don't have to, but they choose to do sort of counterintuitive things to fix the situation. And they don't totally fix the situation, but they I I like it because it doesn't underestimate the intelligence of the civilization. As a matter of fact, you know, Picard's going, I have no doubt that you will have spaceships one day, but. You know, they just sort of take this little group and they level with them. They say, look, we're space people. Here's here's what we're doing. This and this and this. And it seems like the people are wise enough to go, oh, okay. And just go, we'll ignore that rock from now on, you know. And the people in this village know that we're being watched. But, you know, at the same time... It's just sort of something. It's not like they're being we're being watched by somebody who's going to come to our aid or something. It's just the only thing it imparts is that they have knowledge that there's other life and intelligence out on other planets. Right. Which is still a breach of the prime directive, but it's way better than if they were a uh, you know, just worshipped and as gods. As in that throwaway scene in, <laughs> in uh, oh, you didn't see Into Darkness. Yeah. No. Well, you watched the first 10 minutes anyway. Back when it first came out, when they showed the first 10 minutes of it. No, no, I didn't see Oh, you see never that. watched it? No. Oh, okay. 
There's a throwaway gag with, you know, a bunch of natives seeing the Enterprise and starting to write, you know, draw into their scrolls the, the, the you know, Enterprise and the Federation yeah. insignia. <laughs> it's just left at that, though, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um... See, for me, I, I really do enjoy this episode. I, I, I like it a whole lot. But the the angle of it that, that does bug me is it, it's the typical thing of Picard. He, he still, every time I think, okay, we finally got to that point where this is more the, the next gen that I remember. The, mm-hmm. the, you know, the stereotypical next gen that is in everybody's collective conscious and then i realized no we're still not quite there sometimes picard's still that one that's not quite there he still hasn't made that that transition into a a little more um i don't know whatever i'm looking for with him because in this one i think he regresses again and at least in the beginning of the episode into kind of that just the grumpy old cold-hearted bastard because that scene where he tells crusher that he should have that she should have just let the guy die i he doesn't though know... he just suggested he goes you know she's like i couldn't have just left him and couldn't you you know yeah. and so it's sort of it's sort of gray area whether he's insinuating that she should have or he's just sort of like really tweaking her opinion you know getting to hear getting her to give him a good answer for why you know she didn't leave him there he he might have been basically saying under the table give me a good reason to put in my files <laughs> when i make this report to starfleet why you beam that man up you know rather than let him die you know because he's going to be responsible for it ultimately and as far as starfleet goes when you start having prime directive breaches but at the same time <clears throat> Any prime directive breaches that have been going on really have all been the um, effect of just total disaster, you know, random disaster and not, it doesn't seem like incompetence or, or malicious intent or or somebody being greedy and wanting to exploit the natives. It was just, you know, something malfunctioned and they got exposed right. and it was just a series of mishaps after that, you know, that that piled up so I, I i don't see how starfleet would put a lot of responsibility on picard but then again we're also reminded constantly whenever they send a new starfleet person to hang out at the ship that people at starfleet are really kind of pricks yeah so very officious yeah, yeah so he might be playing a little game of cover his ass there with crusher I can see that. I, I think we've talked about this before, so I don't want to belabor the point. But to me, I I, I think the, the Prime Directive as a concept, I understand the reason why it's there. And I agree with it. I, I think that mm-hmm. it, it would be dangerous. I think that is something that uh, I, I find it very interesting that it has been talked about in real scientific circles, the, the idea that if and when humanity ever does get off its ass and truly get out among the stars and begin to meet our cosmic neighbors that when we come across the Indian planet or you know the the Aborigine planet that we leave them the hell alone that we don't go in like we did 
you know, centuries ago and uh, and establish ourselves as, oh, we're the white gods, you know, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. I think that's very important. And I like that that real scientists and real astronauts and, and people that think about this stuff in a real world concept have looked at Star Trek and Roddenberry's idea of the prime directive as, hey, that's that's a good idea. That's the model to use right there. Non-interference. Let them develop well, naturally. As a kid, I like whenever I would hear any of those rules, to me, I would go, of course, it just seems like common sense. It's common sense. Well, yeah. it's, you know, it's like it's like Asimov's rule of uh, of you know rules of robotics. Right. It is. It's common sense. That is the model of of how it should be done. However, I think that with any rule that you ever lay down i think that there comes there there there's two things that that need to well something that needs to happen is that you have to apply a measure of common sense anytime there's a rule right. you know, when you just follow rules to the absolute letter then well, sometimes the 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 I mean, thought behind it gets lost isn't that and all I, of star trek though is is you know that runs through almost all the Star Trek movies and stuff that I see that sometimes you can't help breaking the the prime directive well and and it is it's it's like one of those things like where you try to be steadfast with it but when you gotta sometimes life don't go right by the books you know so sometimes you have to bend the rules and and hope that in the end you come out smelling like a rose you know by saving the day <laughs> see i was thinking about this the other day it's it's funny that this all kind of ties in that i was trying to think how did we get to where we are in star trek today you know with the with the reboot universe and everything how did that happen and i think it happened because with star trek the tv series i'm talking next gen you could do more cerebral episodes. You could explore the human condition and where we were going as a species and all the things that Star Trek The Next Generation as a television show explores. But when you go into the movies, if you notice, the next-gen movies are a completely different animal from the show. Mm -hmm. Suddenly Picard is much more action hero an action star and he's much more kirk like in that he he's very much a man of action he's quick-witted and quick-fisted and that sort of thing and i won't say it's out of character but it was a it was a faster development going that way to a point where one of my favorite lines of any of the next gen films is in an insurrection when they're all getting into the turbo lift and picard says do you remember when we used to be explorers? I think that was a writer's, I don't know so much a dig, but kind of a nod to the fact that, yeah, we have essentially had to change the premise. We can't do right. the show anymore because now we're big screen, and so we have to do a different kind of beast. And so I feel like I've taken, we had a letter not long ago, and I can't remember if we've actually read it on the air yet or not. I, I don't recall, but we had a letter not long ago from someone who was really taking me to task on what they perceived as my hatred of Captain Picard. I don't hate Picard. I actually like Picard a lot. He's actually, you know, he's, I would, I would put, you know, say that he's a hero of mine. I, I think he's actually a really cool character. I came to like him, but it was a sl- very slow burn. 
And it took a long time because I think he had to develop as a character from the stodgy old bastard to more Kirk-like. And I felt like he was starting to make that progress. This episode, I think, is kind of a step backward. And the reason for that is because he does come across, at least to me, as very stiff and rigid in his interpretation of the Prime Directive in this particular episode by by suggesting that Crusher just let the guy die. I would like to think that if, if we ever get out into space and we do have to adopt something like the Prime Directive, that the first time that we're out in space and we come across, uh, whether it's a race or an individual that is hurt and in pain and dying, and we have the power to do something about that, that we won't just look at it and go, well, law says we can't help this person. That's bullshit. What is it going to hurt to save one life? You know, well, granted, <laughs> granted, it could cause to be a sort space of falling effect of. Uh... Well, in yeah, but I mean that's an extreme. In this one, that's an extreme example. You know that that yeah, he ended up remembering, and then yeah, okay. So I I get your point, but do you get mine? You know that yeah, there's the law, but, and then there's the right thing to do. I I you see, I don't think I think if Picard was there, he wouldn't have left the guy to die either. Uh, I, but I think he, you know, I, I, I didn't get put that. I didn't take that as him telling her you should have let him die. I, 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 um, took that as him saying, "All right, give me a. You better have a good reason." But see, this is at least the third time here. that he's done it because he did it in the episode where, where they came across the frozen people from the 20th yeah, century. You would have to do it every time. You would have to, if you were, uh, you know, whatever whatever excuse you have for interference, you would have to have a good excuse for interference. And Right. And, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, if they could have brought him on board and kept him unconscious, then that would have been one thing, you know. But... I don't know why they weren't able to keep him unconscious. Yeah, that's Seems a good like point a pretty too. easy thing to do these now days. That, yeah, now that you say that, that's actually a good point I hadn't thought of is that, you know, there's I'm sure there's plenty of it's, drugs on the Enterprise where they could just keep him unconscious. Or some sort of time. beam that just puts your brain in sleep waves. Stasis, yeah, they had stasis in Star Trek, sure. yeah. Sure. Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. Well, and then, you know, it's one of those things that, they didn't do it because then they wouldn't have a story. I well, I got the I got the impression that maybe they did give him a little hypo of something, but maybe these guys were kind of maybe a little more resistant to it or tougher, since they are sort of, you know, um, Vulcany, Romulany. Yeah. yeah. But I'm even sad. so, they should have been able to know to take that into account, you know. But overall, I mean, I, I don't want to nitpick it too much because I, I really do. I really it. liked it. Actually, this yeah. is what this is, I think, my favorite episode of of the season so far. Yeah, it is a good one. It, it gets you thinking. And it's, you know, it's it's well acted. I really like the, you know, the different characters that are in it. It is. It's, it's a really good episode. I know the show gets me thinking because my eyes and ears bleed. <laughs> I give this one two bleeding ears and two bleeding eyes. <laughs> you want to take a little break and come back with the comic? Aye, sir. 
Greetings, podcast listener. Do you like... Ready to form Voltron! Or maybe... How about... I am Batman! Or... This is a job for Superman! Do you remember... Power Rangers! Or this? Right away, Michael. Or maybe even this? Autobots, transform! Or this? By the power of Grayskull! Or... For the honor of Grayskull! Or have you seen the latest episode of... Hello. I'm the Doctor. If you answered yes to any of these questions, then check out Charlie's GeekCast, hosted by me, Charlie Niemeyer. Charlie's GeekCast is a bi-weekly podcast covering comics and other geek stuff. The first episode of each month is devoted to comics, where, currently, I'm covering Grant Morrison's run on JLA, one storyline at a time. The other episode of the month is devoted to whatever else I want to talk about, such as movies, TV shows, cartoons, video games, and more. Feel free to check it out at www.charliesgeekcast.com. You'll be glad you did. Well, hopefully. All right, welcome back. And now we're in everybody's favorite section of the show. <laughs> the comic-y section. Woo-hoo! And th- this month it's Scott Gardner's turn to do the synergies. Yes. All right, so this time around we are going to be looking at Star Trek The Next Generation from DC Comics. This is issue number three. The uh, cover date on this one is December 89. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, this came out on Halloween in 1989. It's funny that it's not a, a Halloween story, though, but they don't always get those things timed perfectly. Original cover price on this one was $1.50. Cover on this one, I really like the cover on this one, is by Jeremy K. Moore. And this is the cover I like to call, Dave's Not Here, Man. You got a... Uh, Picard knocking on a door while uh, uh, Troy and what's the dude's name? McRib, who actually looks like a girl. In who this looks picture, like, I actually, I was just going to say, he doesn't look like a, I mean, he's all like gawky and freckly in the comic. <laughs> uh, he just looks like a regular old ginger in this one. Well, that's because everybody in this issue looks like they're a Kaminoan, <laughs> but we'll get back to that later. I'm serious. Now, I hate to pick on poor Pablo Marcus, but am I exaggerating here? Pablo the neck Marcus? Yeah, I mean, everybody has an elongated neck in this thing. But anyway. (laughs) He likes necks, what can I say? (laughs) He's a neck man. Uh, The writer on this one is Michael Jan Friedman. Pablo Marcus is the artist. Bob Pinaha is the letterer. Juliana Ferreter is the colorist robert greenberger editor this story is called the derelict and unfortunately doesn't have anything to do with drunken down and out winos which is a shame yeah <laughs> so our story opens in 10 forward where picard and guinan are having a little chat about the outcome of events from the first two issues picard confesses that he is disappointed and appalled Not so much with the Primarch's daughter, however, but with himself for having misjudged her and the situation. Guinan tries to reassure him that everyone makes mistakes and that it just makes him human. But Picard says he can't afford to be just human. Damn it, he's the captain. 
In engineering, Jordy uses an anomaly with the warp drive to worm his way out of a blind date that Riker tried to hook him up with. Riker is then summoned to the bridge by Data to take a look at a ship of unknown design that they've just happened to stumble across. Sensors show that the ship is devoid of life signs, and since LaForge is busy working, Riker picks McRib to accompany him on the away mission to investigate, along with Worf and Dr. Pulaski and some unknown guy. By the way, I just want to note here that uh, even though we're covering these comics concurrent with the release dates of the episodes that we're covering, so they're, they're perfectly lined up as far as the release time, you can see here by this story that there's still a, lot, a lag in the continuity of the comics because Dr. Crusher hasn't yet returned to the Enterprise. That's why we have Pulaski in this story. But we are actually caught up time-wise, so I just wanted to point that out. Anyway, LaForge contacts the captain to inform him that he's tracked down the trouble with the engines, and it seems that they have a cracked dilithium crystal. It's not too serious, but it will prevent them from operating at high warp speeds until they uh, swap it out something that Picard is strangely hesitant to do while the away team is on the other ship. And can you just see where all this is headed? On the alien, ves uh, alien vessel, the team finds a nice big empty control room, but Worf is suspicious as there are no bodies, no seats, and no monitors. For the umpteenth time, Worf's cautiousness is casually brushed aside by the other crew members and this time, it immediately comes back to bite him in the ass when the chamber starts to seal itself off. Not, however, before Worf and McRib are able to duck through a hatch and make their way out, but it does trap Riker, Pulaski, and Ensign Expendable inside. So back on the Enterprise, Picard has the gall to actually act surprised despite all of the warning signs that we've been given up to this point, most of which are pretty standard cliche by now. Riker tries to phaser his way out, Worf tries to phaser his way in, and while they do that, the view screen comes alive with this image that is like right out of a Doctor Strange comic or something. This very like satanic looking alien comes on the screen, and he congratulates them for falling into the trap, says they will be arriving at the planet Taxus shortly, and there they'll be dissected and studied and to have a nice day. He's kind of There's... a little vagina face too. Just yeah, that, I didn't notice that actually. So the ship speeds off, with Riker and party aboard, the Enterprise, of course, takes off after it in high-speed pursuit, much to Geordi's chagrin. He reminds Picard that they have a wonky crystal and that they're likely to throw a space rod or something if they keep driving this fast, but Picard just orders more speed to be continued. What'd you think of this one? I liked it a lot better than the last storyline so far. The art... Yeah, yeah. Here and there, it's pretty good. Yeah. But I think the writer has got all the characters' voices right. Yes. I can hear the actors saying all their dialogue. It flows like their dialogue. The the um, conversation with Jordy and in number one at the beginning, where they're talking about his blind date. I could totally hear Levar Burton saying those lines. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's they've really got their inflections and their their verbal patterns down and let me characters. ask you something on that though I, I completely agree with you however does this scene with Picard and Guinan that opens the book does this ring true in the context that this is actually 10 forward 
like during regular business hours with with all the other crew mingling in there and you've got Picard at the bar drink in hand basically bearing his soul to guys yeah does that ring true cuz that uh as far as the interaction between the two of them and the dialogue just between the two of them oh yeah i thought it rang really true but the fact of where they actually are with all these other crewmen just about that kind of struck me as i don't think picard would do that you know be seen like that you know because he's very much about the captain being seen to be the captain and well they might have been having a private conversation too they might have been you know People might just for you know seen him talking to her, and not known that he was go you know what he was talking about. I was trying like hell to remember if there was ever a time where Picard comes to ten forward and has a drink during regular operating hours of ten. And I cannot for the life of me recall that ever happening. But I, you know, I, I'm, I will profess I'm no expert when it comes to every yeah. single. Bit of trivia for next gen. Maybe but this was, really shook him up. Could be. It could be. On the second page, that fourth panel of Picard right there, mm-hmm. tell me he doesn't look just like that ET creature that Luke does the little scorpion trick with in that Marvel comic that we looked at. Oh, God. Doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Data uses a contraction on page five that last panel i know i'm a big nerd for pointing that out but it did jump right out to me when i saw it i love that pulaski's in this because i of course i really like Uh pulaski i'm not sure how much longer she'll be in the book but it was cool to see her again um I enjoyed this a lot. I agree with you. I think it's a lot better story, even if it is kind of we've seen this, we've done this before. I still like it better than the the setup, the initial story in the first two issues, just because it, it feels a little more naturally Star Trek. You don't have a bunch of goofy looking out, well, except for the one that pops up on the view screen. It just feels a little bit more like a standard TV episode, and, and I enjoyed it that way. He looks However, like the bad guy from the Space Ghost show. <laughs> I never watched a whole lot of Space Ghost, but I think I know the one that you're talking about. He actually looks like something that's vaguely Asian or something, but I can't quite put my finger on where I think I've seen something like this before. My big problem with this issue, though, and I'm going to need some help from the listening audience on this one to let me know, am I right, am I wrong... I really don't know, but something definitely occurred to me while I was reading this. Okay, so essentially the big MacGuffin in this one is we may not be able to catch the alien ship because we failed to take advantage of when we had the time to swap out the crystal. Crystal's cracked. It's going to fracture. Enterprise is going to come to a screeching halt. Okay, I get all that. However... And this is where I'm going to need some help. I know that it's established way down the line when Scotty from the original series comes onto the Enterprise D that they no la- they no longer have to worry about dilithium crystals in the 24th century because they use the, the process that Scotty invented 
in Star Trek Four using the the photons and all that uh-huh. to recrystallize dilithium, so they don't have to worry about it burning out or fracturing anymore. They just regenerate it right there inside the chamber. Uh, LaForge explains all this himself. So, my first thought was that okay, this isn't very well researched. That that doesn't hold up. That's that's a, a holdover from the original series that they're trying to use as a plot device in this one. But then again, that episode is several seasons from now. So ah, at this time, do we no know idea. that? You know, <laughs> did, did Michael Jan Friedman screw up? Or he just didn't have all the pieces of the puzzle yet because that hadn't been revealed yet. Mm-hmm. So I'm not exactly sure on that. Michael Jan Friedman tends to be one of the better Star Trek writers and really know his Trek. So I'd like to think that he didn't, you know, just mess up in this, but I I don't know for sure what the answer is on that. But I do know that, to my recollection, I can't remember them having, you know, remember in the earliest episodes of TOS, there were a lot of episodes that had to do with, oh my God, the dilithium crystals, the dilithium crystals. Every time you turn around, it was like Iron Man with his, right. with his transistors. He was running out of power all the time. And I don't recall them ever really having that problem on Next Gen because I thought the theory was that they'd pretty much lick that problem by this point. And Next Gen, as a series, spins out of the success of Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. So, again, I kind of thought that it, it seems very natural that they would take that process and just adopt it into all future tech. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I'm probably going too long and too technical on this, but it just was one of those things that really jumped out at me like, I don't think that holds water, but I don't know. I can go along with a gag, but it just that it really did kind of jump out at me. The only other thing that really jumped out at me in this was page... Crap, am I going to find it now? Ah... See if I can find it. Oh, here it is. Page 19, next to last panel, where you got O'Brien sitting down at the transporter controls. Since when the hell is there a chair in the transporter room? There's no chairs in That's the transporter true. room. Yeah, he's sitting there like it's a console, console on the bridge. Yep. It looks like a space typewriter, too. Yeah, it looks like he's flipping through a pile of papers at the top. Yeah. Yeah. Do you notice everybody talks to the ceiling in this issue too? Yes. <laughs> There's a lot of shots of people just looking up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every time they're they're talking to somebody over the communicator, they're looking straight up at the ceiling. It's kind of weird. Even Jordy does it. <laughs> He's blind. It's pointless. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> He should be doing that all the time, actually. That's all I got on this. And I, yeah. I mean, it's a good setup and everything. It's well paced. It uh, it, it goes by really quickly. When it ended, I was like, oh, I expected it to be, you know, a little longer. I thought there were going to be like four or five more pages. So have we, have we seen full body spacesuits on Next Gen yet? I don't think we have. I'm glad that they did wear them though because it would have been a little ridiculous to just beam over so it's good that they have some sort of thing to keep them decontaminated 
it's cool because they they look like a, a natural halfway point between the ones that Kirk and Company wore in say like the Tholian web, and then the ones that we would eventually see in Next Gen. But I just can't remember in the episodes we've covered so far if we've had any episodes where they were in head to toe space gear or not. I I can't recall. I don't think so. Not that I, I can remember. So. Yeah, I can't recall. But uh, but yeah, it's a it's a good set. It'll be interesting to see where it goes from here. I like the idea that this was all a trap, just to. Uh, what does the alien say? What are they going to use gonna, them? They're or... going to dissect them. They're going to bring them back, study them, and then dissect them. That was it, just to study. But to keep them, you know. But they'll they'll keep them comfortable up until then. Once <laughs> there, right. you will be examined and dissected. All possible care will be taken to make you comfortable for as long as you are alive <laughs> how nice but he doesn't say why they want to do it though other than are they just like sadistic freaks they yeah just well the name of their this... world is tax us <laughs> taxes to death which backwards is sucks at <laughs> so yeah and look at the guy Imagine two of those things making out. Yeah, no, they're not happy. <laughs> he's got some snaggle teeth. Yeah, I bet he's got some bad breath, too. <laughs> yeah, he's not an attractive guy. No, he's... Maybe if he was... He might be a big star if he was on the cover of a heavy metal album or something like that. Right. But... <laughs> Or on a shield in a Conan the Barbarian comic. But yeah, exactly. It's weird yeah. because it's like, okay, it's an insect-like thing, obviously, you know, exoskeleton thing. But it's got a human uh, human nose and human eyes, which is kind of weird and off-putting. Mm. This is true. Definitely don't want to go visit Taxus, that's for sure, though. <laughs> Uh, Actually, you'll be comfortable right up until you die. <laughs> you can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a little cut of what you buy, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. <laughs> Visit our brand new website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. Join our forum at forumforgeeks.com where you can discuss all of the shows on our feed with us and your fellow listeners. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. And hey, you can friend me, Scott Gardner, on Facebook too. My name is spelled S-C-O-T-T. -T. 
G-A-R-D-N-E-R. You can friend me on Facebook, too, if you can find me. Now available, Two True Freaks t-shirts. See our website for details. Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. You can check that out at www.comicspodcast.com, where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up. We are also members of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com league. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? Thanks for listening, and join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks. We were finally invited aboard one of these spacecraft, which landed near Ann Arbor, Michigan, on October the 24th of 1954. This is a drawing of the craft. As I was leaving the craft, the commander, Soltek, said, Soon others of your people will be able to have an experience similar to this.